It feels very odd to start speaking in English when everything's been in French so far. But they tell me 80% of you understand me and that 20% have headsets and my new friend Nick is helping you out with the headsets. So I'm going to proceed by faith. And I was very excited to begin this first session tonight by talking about Tom Carson. And one of the only things I understood from Francois and Daniel there was the name Tom Carson. As I got ready to travel here to Montreal, I picked up my copy of Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor. And as I flipped through, I saw at the beginning that Tom Carson died in October of 1992. October 26th, 1992, 30 years ago, this month, this month, that ordinary pastor, he grew up in Ottawa a century ago, he attended seminary in Toronto, he did evangelism in Montreal in the 1930s, 1940s, then from 1948 to 1963, about 15 years, he was a paid pastor in Drummondville, which they tell me is about 70 minutes from here. In 1963, at the age of 52, he left pastoral ministry in Drummondville and returned to Ottawa to work for the government. I know many of you know this better than I do. As a translator for the Canadian government, and he began serving as an unpaid pastor. So I hope his life can knit together here in this room those who are paid pastors and those who are lay pastors in the churches here in Quebec. And he died quietly, as Don has memorialized so well at the end of the book, in October of 1992, quietly and without fanfare. He was not well known or celebrated in his day. He was an ordinary pastor and an ordinary elder. And he would probably be shocked that here we are 30 years later talking about him. And so because of Don, <laughs> we know his name. He was an ordinary pastor as Don captures in the title. And as we remember Tom Carson, we remember him because of his ordinariness. And I want us to talk about that in these two sessions here tonight. So I've titled this, Ordinary elders, or you can think of it as ordinary pastors, because as I suspect many of you have heard, perhaps often, that in the New Testament, pastors are overseers, are elders, and we have different titles we use nowadays and have some confusion we've introduced, but in the New Testament, it's three titles for the one lead office or teaching office in the church, which is what we'll focus on here this evening. So let me pray for us. Actually, let me read for you our, for our text for this first session. One of my favorite texts on leadership in all of scripture. 1 Peter 5, 1 to 5. If you've got a Bible, come there with me. And before we read the text, let me mention just briefly something about the context of this passage. Because the first word that we're going to read in my ESV translation in the English is the word so. So what? What's the connection to chapter 4? And in the link to chapter 4 is the hard times that the elders had gone through, the hard times that the church had been through, to which Peter writes. 1 Peter 4.12, 
fiery trials. Verse 13, sufferings. Verse 14, insults. Verses 15, 16, 19, suffer, suffers, suffer. This is a word for elders in hard times. And maybe you've been through some hard times in the last two plus years. And I hope Christ would have something for us here tonight in 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 to 5. So let me read the text and pray for this first session. So Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, subject yourselves to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray together. So Father, as we meet together here tonight over your word, and to talk about the call of the pastor, the elder, the overseer in the local church, as we come with English familiarity, with French familiarity, from Canada and Quebec and from the United States, would you meet us here together in your word? In 1 Peter 5 in particular, in other places, Father, for those who are currently pastors, would you meet and strengthen their hands in the work? For those who aspire to the pastorate, would you deepen and strengthen and renew that desire? And Father, I pray for some in this room who may not have an aspiration to pastoral ministry and are here this evening, I pray that you would give them a true, accurate vision of Christian leadership from the New Testament and would it be compelling to their lives. And may they perhaps one day aspire to the work of the pastors and elders. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. One of the most precious promises in all the Bible for pastors is Matthew 16, 18. Hope you know it, hope you feel it. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against that church that Jesus is building. Jesus is the chief shepherd in his church. He is the shepherd and overseer of our souls. First Peter chapter two says, the great shepherd of the sheep, Hebrews 13. He builds his church and his work will not fail. Won't fail from hell, from sin, death, disease, division. His work will not fail. And one of the ways, this is remarkable, one of the ways that Christ builds and sustains his church and blesses his church is by giving her the gift of pastors. It's a remarkable thing. He gives his church leaders underneath 
his singular shepherding authority. Paul says in Ephesians 4.11, he gave the apostles and evangelists and prophets and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Faithful pastors and elders are a gift from the risen Christ to his local churches to guide and keep his church. Now, this may not be a truth that is healthy for pastors to regularly preach to themselves. I'm a gift to this church. I'm a gift to this church. But it can be really good to be reminded of it. Sometimes from somebody from out of town, somebody from out of the country, to remind you, pastor, no matter what they said in the email this week, you are a gift to your church. No matter what you suspect is being whispered in the congregation or in the community or the cynicism that's not being whispered, you're a gift to your church. No matter what that person posted online and you didn't see it, but your wife saw it and she said, did you see this? And then you saw it. You're a gift to your church. No matter what has been said explicitly, implicitly, to the contrary, dear brothers, as you lean on Christ and remain faithful to him and his word, you are a gift to your church. Are we pastors flawed? Of course. Are we sinful? Regrettably. Have some who carried the name pastor made terrible mistakes and fleeced their flocks and sinned grievously and harmed the very ones they were commissioned to protect? Tragically, yes. But such failures were not the fulfilling of Christ's call to the work of pastor elders. They were the showing of what the vision is to the contrary by their failures in the work. And that's what our focus is this evening. What Christ calls his pastors and elders to be in the local church. In particular, the lead office in the local church, which is synonymous with the teaching office in the local church, as we'll see. Pastor, elder, overseer, different traditions, accent, one of the titles, but they're the, they're the title for the same office in the New Testament. Now, I want to give most of our focus in this first session to the three not-but pairs in verses 2 to 3. You'll see there's three pairs there. Not this, but that. Not this, but that. Not this, but that. That's where I want to spend most of our time. However, before we go there, I want to start with three preliminary observations about the passage that I hope will be relevant and helpful for you. Number one, elders are plural. You see that in chapter 5, verse 1. I exhort the elders among you. One of the most important truths to rehearse about Christian ministry is that Christ means for it to be teamwork. Teamwork. As in 1 Peter 5. So in every context in the New Testament where we have local church pastor elders mentioned, the title is plural. 
The reality's plural. Christ alone reigns supreme in his church. He is the head of his church, and he alone. The glory of singular leadership in the church is a glory that is Christ's alone. And then he appoints under shepherds. Even the apostles were plural. Under shepherds that would serve under him, not alone, but as a team to care well for his local church. And so the kind of pastors that we long for in this age are good men with good friends. People want to be led by good men who have good friends. They want to be led by a healthy team. Friends who love the pastors, love each other enough to challenge their instincts and tell them when they're mistaken and hold them to the fire of accountability and make life harder and better, both more uncomfortable and more fruitful. That's what team does. Team's harder and better. Second observation, the elders shepherd. That's shepherd as a verb. The elders shepherd. That's the main verb in verses one to five, which is Peter's charge to the elders. Shepherd, verb. Shepherd the flock of God. Now, shepherding, as you may know, is a rich image, biblically. We should beware any simplistic understanding of what the shepherd metaphor means. It is a rich biblical image. Consider all that shepherds do. They feed. They water. They tend the flock. They herd the flock together. They protect. They guide. They lead to new pastures so the, feet can, so the sheep can feed. They govern, they care, they nurture the sheep. To shepherd is an image of what we might call benign rule. Good governance. Benign rule in which the good of the shepherd is bound up with the good of the sheep. The shepherd doesn't get good when the sheep lose. The shepherd gains when the sheep gain. The concept of shepherding also has a rich Old Testament background, not just in the patriarchs and in the nation of Israel when they're in Egypt and in the wilderness, but also in King David, right? The shepherd boy who became the nation's greatest king and the anointed one who anticipated the great anointed one to come. And so with David, this idea of shepherding takes on messianic overtones in the scripture. David, of course, had his own grave failures in shepherding the nation. And after David, the trend of Israel's kings got worse and worse and worse in general. Five centuries later, the prophet Ezekiel condemned the nation's leaders as shepherds for feeding themselves rather than feeding the flock. Let me read to you from Ezekiel 34, verses 2 to 4. He says, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. 
The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. The leaders of Israel should have fed the sheep, not fed on them. They should have strengthened the people and healed them and bound them up and brought them back and sought them, but instead they governed them, Ezekiel says, with force and harshness. It was not benign rule. It was malignant rule. In the memoirs book, Don talks about an episode in his father's life where he was serving in a lay capacity as one of the associate pastors or elders. And the particular pastor, I think it was in uh, Got to Know, I don't say that quite right, Got to Know. Oh, here we go. And at the church meeting, there was a discussion as to whether this pastor should move on. And at one point, they called on Tom. I think the pastor himself called on Tom to express his opinion. And Don captured in the, in the book as, the sheep need to be fed, not scolded. That was his criticism of this minister whose time was about to end at the church. The people today and in ancient Israel long for a shepherd, a king who will rule them with gentle strength, with persuasion and kindness, with patience and grace, even as he protects them from their enemies. And God says in response to the sinful shepherds, the shepherds feeding themselves in ancient Israel, I will rescue my flock. I will come. I will do it. I will feed them. I will heal them. I will rescue them. And then he also says, I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Note, note the prominence of feeding in the shepherd metaphor. And so the prophet Micah foretold that from Bethlehem, the city of David, will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. And during his life, Jesus himself says he is the good shepherd in John 10, who rather than taking from the sheep, gives to the sheep, gives them life, gives his own life for the sake of the sheep. He is the long-promised shepherd. He is Yahweh himself come to rescue and heal and feed and heal his people. But then, amazingly, at the end of the Gospel of John, when Jesus asked Peter, this same Peter who's writing 1 Peter 5, Jesus asked Peter three times if he loved him. And Peter says yes. That's a good answer. And three times Jesus says to Peter, feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. 
Feed my sheep. Here, feeding and pasturing are synonymous in this aspect. Jesus is the good shepherd, and he is leaving to ascend to his father's right hand, and he will now pastor his sheep through Peter and other under-shepherds, not just apostles, but local church elders, overseers, pastors. As Paul says to the elders in Acts 20, verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. There's that shepherding metaphor, the flock, in which, we could pause there. He doesn't say over which. He says in which. You elders, you shepherds, you're first and foremost in the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. The elders in Acts 20, as in 1 Peter 5, are also overseers. And they are to care for. Literally, the verb is pastor. Shepherd as a verb. Pastor the church of God. And finally, we go forward to the book of Revelation. This is last under point number two. I know this is a long preliminary observation. We have two images in the book of Revelation as, of Jesus as the shepherd. The lamb as shepherd. Amazing. The lamb is the shepherd. He will guide the people to springs of living water in Revelation 7, 17. And then in three texts, he will rule with a rod of iron. Chapter 2, chapter 12, chapter 19. Which doesn't mean that he is forceful and harsh with his people. He's not. He wields the rod of iron against the enemies of his people. And so in Psalm 23, as the sheep, grinning from ear to ear, enjoying fresh pasture, by still waters, looks up and sees his shepherd and sees the shepherd holding a rod, the sheep is comforted because he's not going to use the rod to beat the sheep. He's going to use the rod to keep the wolves away from the sheep. He might crack a wolf's skull with the rod, but he's not going to beat up on his sheep with his rod or one day his rod of iron in the book of Revelation. So elders shepherd. That's just a taste of the richness of this shepherding theme. And centrally, the theme relates to feeding and watering, green pastures, still waters in Psalm 23, but also it relates to protecting. Shepherding means caring for the sheep and leading with gentleness and kindness, with persuasion and patience, and wielding the rod of protection to keep the sheep from threats. Third observation, and this one's much quicker. Elders exercise oversight. That's the phrase that augments the main ver verb of shepherding, exercising oversight. It's a form of the noun overseer that we just saw in Acts 20, verse 28. 
as well as four other New Testament texts mention overseers as one of the three titles for the lead or teaching office in the church. And oversee in this context doesn't mean that the elders, the overseers, only watch and observe. Oh, wow, look at that wolf. He just took out three of the sheep. They don't only watch and observe, but they also see to it that important observations about the flock and any threats to the flock become tangible initiatives in the life of the church, actions in the life of the church. So being overseers implies action. You don't only see, you also take action based on what you observe and see. Which brings us then to the heart of the passage in 1 Peter 5, where Peter gives his three not buts. Not this, but that. Look at verses 2 and 3 with me. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, first pair, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Number two, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Three, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. All right, so let's take them then in reverse order. All right, number one, not domineering, but exemplifying. We saw in Ezekiel 34, God's condemnation for shepherds who ruled with force and harshness. And Peter's term here is not domineering or not lording it over, which is the same language that we have translated elsewhere as lording it over. It's built on a strong verb that can refer in other contexts to Jesus' lordship or to the kind of lordship that sin once had over us but should not anymore or to the kind of lordship that Christian leaders do not have over those in their charge. We don't have this lordship. We have other means of influence and of life change, as we'll see. The intensified form of the verb here in not domineering, not lording it over in 1 Peter 5 is the same verb in Mark 10, 42. And I suspect Peter probably got it from Jesus. Paul uses the same verb elsewhere too, probably got it from Jesus. I think this is a very well-known teaching of Christ's in the early church. And if you read a book or go through a course on leadership and you get too far into the course and never hear anything about Mark 10, something might be wrong. Mark 10, 42. Those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, I just love that Jesus says, considered rulers. They seem to be rulers. Trudeau, Biden, Putin, they seem to be rulers. They're not the ones really ruling this world. They may seem like it. They're not really doing the ruling. Those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Okay, well, then how will it be? <laughs> Verse 43, 
But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the opposite of not lording it over others is serving them, seeking their good, pursuing their true and durable and lasting joy. Like Christ himself, coming not to be served, but to serve. And so the place where Paul picks up this not domineering, not lording it over verb from Mark 10, which Peter does in 1 Peter 5, is in Hebrews 13. Actually, 2 Corinthians 124. Let's go there first. 2 Corinthians 124. In a very tense situation in Corinth, where there's a lot of cynicism against the Apostle Paul, right? people were cynical of leaders in the first century too. This is not new. He says, not that we lord it over your faith, Corinthians, there's the language there, but we work with you for your joy. As in Mark 10, lord it over would mean some kind of exercise of privilege or power, the seeking and obtaining of personal private benefit, benefit from them versus benefit that's with them. But rather, Paul's vision of the opposite of lording it over is what he calls working with them for their joy. And the we here is it's amazing. This is Paul's assistance. Timothy, Silas, they're no big deal. He gathers them in with his work. He says, we work. We apostles. We, Timothy, Silas, my team, we work. We give effort. We expend energy. It's not just overflow. It's work. It's labor. Jesus says the harvest is great and the laborers are few. Pray earnestly for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers to labor, not just overflow. Many good things begin with overflow. Very few things are completed by overflow. That's why the ministry is called labor. <laughs> Start it with overflow, finish it with labor. It takes a work ethic to do Christian ministry. The Apostle Paul did not suffer a lazy Christian, and he did not suffer lazy pastors. But this is not work that we do alone. Such good news. It's teamwork. Not only is there a we for Paul and his company of the leaders, but there's also a with you. Paul's doing this with them. He's not just doing it in their stead. He's not dying for them on a cross. He's working with them in Christian ministry, for their deep, their lasting, their durable joy. So he's, he and pastors with him expend effort. We engage, we invest energy, we work with the people, which is so vital to keep in mind in our discipling, in our counseling. We work with them, not instead of them. We bring them in, we draw them in, we draw them out. And that work, Paul says, is for the people's joy. 
That's what he's aiming at. It's not implicit. It's explicit here and elsewhere. And it's not a thin, fleeting, sugar high of a joy. He is talking real, deep, lasting, long-term, durable joy in Christ. The kind of joy that tastes the next age and what's to come, tastes it in the present and is able to endure and labor in the most difficult of circumstances and conflicts. Even with the frictions and the sufferings of our present time, real joy is not precluded, but we are all the more desperate for it and it's supplied by looking forward to the reward. So Christian leaders are workers for the joy of their people, not controlling, not domineering, not lording over them, but rather they are to serve in the words of Jesus and workers for their people's joy in the words of Paul and examples to the flock in the words of Peter, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. What about that word examples? I can imagine that some hear the word examples as terrifying. I don't want anybody to look at me. I don't want anybody to imitate me. I don't want to be an example. I hear other people hearing the word example as really modest and humbling. Can't it be something great? Isn't ministry great? Examples? Give me something bigger. I need more than example. It's humbling. Examples? That's all? Nothing about great oratory or thoroughly entertaining or gifted communication or local hero? Examples sounds... It sounds so normal. It's, it sounds ordinary. And it is. It's like Tom Carson. Ordinary pastor. Ordinary elder. Twice, Peter says that the elders are to be among the flock. See that two times? Among the flock. I exhort the elders among you. They're among the people. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So the people are among the elders. He doesn't say that the elders are above the people or off to the side or far away or remote. Among, among the people. And this is because good pastors are first and foremost sheep. They know it. They embrace it. That pastors don't comprise a fundamentally different category of Christian they need not be world-class in their intellect, in their oratory, in their executive skills. Their average, ordinary, healthy Christians, thinking for the flock, praying for the flock, and serving as examples for the flock while among the flock. As they lead and feed the flock, through teaching God's word, accompanied with wise collective governance. 
which we'll talk about in the second session. The hearts of good pastors swell at Jesus' charge in Luke 10, 20. For young guys aspiring to pastor or elder work, I'd recommend memorizing Luke 10, 20. Rejoice not that the demons are subject to you in my name, but rejoice in this, that your names are written in heaven. There is ministry joys to taste and rejoice in, and they can be dangerous if they eclipse the greater, sweeter, more lasting joy of being his, first and foremost, sheep. The first and fundamental joy of good pastors is not what God does through them, but what Christ has done and does for them as Christians. On this note, and consonant with remembering Tom Carson as an ordinary pastor elder, I can't help but quickly share a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It, it, it's a lightning strike against celebrity in the church, at least celebrity instincts among many of our people. And Bonhoeffer saw this in the German church in the 1930s, which is interesting. In the 1930s, produced Hitler in the German society. But he saw instincts in the German church in the 1930s, and he wrote this. This is the end of chapter 4 in Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together. He said, Jesus made authority in the fellowship dependent upon brotherly service. Every cult of personality that emphasizes the distinguished qualities, virtues, and talents of another person, even though these be of an altogether spiritual nature, is worldly and has no place in the Christian community. One finds there, he's referring to the elder qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, one finds there nothing whatsoever with respect to worldly charm and the brilliant attributes of a spiritual personality. The elder is the simple, faithful man, ordinary, sound in faith and life, who rightly discharges his duties to the church. The church does not need brilliant personalities, but faithful servants of Jesus and the brethren. The question of the church's trust, this is, this is relevant, the church's trust is determined by the faithfulness with which a man serves Jesus Christ, never by the extraordinary talents which he possesses. Pastoral authority can be attained only by the servant of Jesus who seeks no power of his own, who himself is a brother among brothers, submitted to the authority of the word. Such is Bonhoeffer's call for ordinary elders. So not domineering over those in our charge, but serving as examples. Number two, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Shameful gain would be some benefit that is not commensurate with the work itself or 
some gain in the leader that comes from loss in the people. Whether that's whether the pursuit of money as a driving motivation in the ministry or power, respect, comfort, the chance to perform, enjoying being on the platform. The fact that there is a shameful gain that is outlawed (laughs) means there is a shameless gain that is encouraged. So don't think that the pastoral ministry is not about gain. It is about gain. Shameless gain. Gain in the glory of Christ. Gain in the good of the people. And we'll see that here in a minute in verse 4. In terms of eagerness, the epistle to the Hebrews gives this important glimpse into the dynamic of Christian leadership as workers for the joy of the flock. So now we're going to Hebrews 13. It's Hebrews 13, 17. One of the most important texts, single verses on leadership. Obey your leaders, he said. So he's writing to the people. Peter's writing to the elders. Hebrews is writing to the people. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you, church. So here's a beautiful marriage-like vision of the complementary relationship between the church and its leaders. The leaders, for their part, labor. They they work hard. It's costly, as we've talked about. They work hard for the advantage, for the profit, for the gain of the church. And the church, for its part, wants leaders to work not only hard, but happily without groaning because the pastor's joy in leading will lead to the church's own benefit. The people want their leaders to labor with joy because they know that the leaders are working for their joy. Which means Christ gives leaders to his people for their joy. Pastors are glad workers for the gladness of our people. How eager then might congregants be to submit to such a leader? If you knew the leader's working for your joy. The prospect of submitting to a leader drastically changes when you know he isn't in it for private advantage, but genuinely seeking what's best for you. What will give you deepest and most enduring joy when he finds his joy in yours rather than apart from or instead of yours? The word submission has many negative connotations today. I'm assuming that's not just in the United States. All the more in Quebec, I suspect. But how might the charge to submit in Hebrews 13, 17, and be subject in 1 Peter 5, 5, how might that change when we see it in the context of shepherding and oversight and pastoring as the way Peter sets it up? There's no charge 
to be subject in verse 5 until there's verses 2 to 4. To establish a context of pastors who work for the joy of their people, who are willing, who are eager, who are exemplary. They feed the flock, not themselves. They attend to the flock's needs, not just their own. They gain as the flock gains, not as the flock loses. It's an amazing thing to consider what actions and initiatives and care are presupposed or commanded in the New Testament from husbands, from fathers, from governors, and from pastor elders before any charge is ever given to submit to them. Colossians 3.18, husbands, love and be kind to your wife, not harsh. Ephesians 6.3, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Provoke them to joy. Romans 13, 1 Peter chapter 2, civil governors, be God's servant for society's good, avenging, wrong, avenging wrongdoing. Pastors, feed the flock through public teaching and paying careful attention to and keeping watch over the flock. And then, people, be subject, submit to your leaders. Pastor elders are to give of themselves, their time, their energy, their attention to work for the joy of the flock. Therefore, church, submit to such men, submit to such leadership. In Hebrews 13, 17, negatively, they're going to give an account for it. They will have to give an account. It's a negative way of saying it. The positive way is... It's going to be for your advantage. You want them to be happy because they're laboring for you to be happy in Jesus. Let them labor with joy, not groaning. That's to your benefit. When leaders in the church show themselves to be workers for the people's joy, we walk in the steps of the great shepherd. He was the great worker for the joy of the church. He's the one who bore the greatest cost for others' good and not to the exclusion of his own joy, right? Hebrews 12, 2. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Pursuing the joy of the church didn't mean his being miserable. Rather, he pursued it with joy, which I, I wonder if Hebrews 12, 2 takes its cues from Isaiah 53, 11. Out of his anguish, the suffering servant will see. He'll see his offspring. He'll see what it's bringing about. And he'll be satisfied. As workers for the church's joy, we pastor elders emphatically pursue gain. Not shameful gain, but shameless gain. That is our joy in the joy of the church to the glory of Christ. Joy now in the work and joy in the coming shameless reward of verse 4. How unspeakable is verse 4? When the chief shepherd appears, you, elders, you, pastors, 
will receive the unfading crown of glory. So, not domineering, but examples, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Then finally, last pair, not under compulsion, but willingly. Not under compulsion, but willingly. Deep down, churches want happy pastors. They don't want dutiful clergy. They don't want groaning ministers. The kind of pastors our people want are pastors who want to do the work and labor with joy for their joy. They want pastors who serve not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you do it. That is, this is huge, God himself wants pastors who labor willingly from the heart, not under compulsion. So he wants men who aspire to the work. 1 Timothy 3, 1. And do it with joy, Hebrews 13, 17. Not dutifully or under obligation, but willingly, eagerly, happily. And not just as God would have you because he's dictating that and commanding that. He's requiring something of us that's different from his own character or actions. It's not that. But as God would have you means as God himself does, as God himself is. He's the blessed God, the happy God. He willingly does what he does in the world. It says something about God that he would have it this way as the happy, infinitely blessed God who acts from boundless, immeasurable bliss in the eternal Godhead. He wants pastors to work with joy because he works this way. He acts out of a fullness of joy. He is a God who is most glorified not by heartless duty, but by our eagerness and enjoyment of him as he himself cares for his people willingly, eagerly, happily. So happy pastors and elders, not groaning pastors and elders, make for happy churches and a glorified Savior. Pastors who enjoy the work and work with joy are a benefit and an example and an advantage to their people. Just imagine a scenario. It's Friday afternoon. You get a text message. I was going to say you get a phone call, but passe. You get a text message. One of the sweet widows of your church is in the hospital. You're working on your sermon. You're going to do family dinner. Family movie night is coming up. She's in the hospital. You get in the car. I imagine driving across Montreal is pretty difficult. I'm getting that sense from being here for a day and a half. You get to the hospital, poke your head in the door, and you see her face light up. And she says, Pastor, you came. I wasn't expecting you. You got, you got a sermon to write. You have little kids at home. You got so much else to do. Why did you come see me? 
And we all know that the right answer in that moment is not, it's my duty. (laughs) Check in the box. I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to be here. It's done. Good to see you. Let me pray and go. (laughs) We know that the right answer that makes her feel loved and that makes the ministry be what it's supposed to be is to say, it's my pleasure to be here. I can work on the sermon some other time. I'll make up the time with the kids tomorrow. I'm delighted to be here to let you know you are loved. I love you. The pastors of this church love you. This church loves you. And I'm so excited to be here and offer a word of encouragement and pray with you. Let me end with two practical manifestations of this vision of pastors being workers for the joy of their people. One is a private early morning application. And one is a corporate perhaps late night application. Maybe it's not late night for you. For me at our church, it's late night. We put the kids to bed and then we have our pastors and elders meeting at 8.30 at night. Usually go 8.30 to 10.30, hopefully out of there by 11. Every other Thursday night. It's a late night thing for us. It may not be for you. So what does it look like for me to pursue my joy in the joy of my people to the glory of Christ? Number one, how that might look first thing in the morning. You gotta get the joy somewhere. You're not gonna get it from your people. If, if they're, if they're uh, laboring and praying for your joy, uh, it may come some from them as a kind of icing on the cake. It's not gonna come mainly from them. So we rehearsed the words of George Mueller. Some of you know George Mueller. You know his famous words about meeting with God in the morning. He says, my first and great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. So don't hear this as obligation, okay? Hear this as opportunity. This is not first and foremost a have to, this is a get to, to feed on God. Our souls Get our souls happy in him, not with the accent on us, but on him. He gives in his word. We receive. He speaks. We listen. We come hungry. He says, I'm the bread of life. We come thirsty. He says, ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. So Mueller says, I'll read you some quotes now from George Mueller. The first thing to be concerned about is not how much I might serve the Lord. That is, what I might do for others' joy. This is, really, this is relevant for us in pastoral ministry. That's not the first thing. But the first thing is how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man might be nourished. All right, so how did he pursue this? Sounds great. I'd like to be happy. How'd you do it, George? Mueller's focus, in his words, was the reading of the Word of God and meditation on it. Oh, the joys of unhurried, 
even leisurely meditation on the word of God. He continues, that thus my heart might be comforted, encouraged, warned, reproved, instructed, and that thus, while meditating, my heart might be brought into experiential communion with the Lord. So how then did Mueller go about approaching God's word? He would meditate, he said, searching as it were into every verse to get the blessing out of it. I love that. Not for the sake of public ministry of the word, he says. Not for the sake of preaching what I had meditated on, but for the sake of obtaining food for my soul. Brothers, very practically, for pastors and elders doing regular teaching, regular preaching, I would commend Mueller's practice just to feed your soul. Not prepare the next sermon yet. You knew that later in the day. So he asks, now what is the food for the inner man? And he answers, the word of God. And he adds, here again, Note, not the simple reading of the word of God so that it only passes through our minds just as water runs through a pipe, but considering what we read, pondering over it, applying it to our hearts. In other words, meditation. And he says in the end, how different when the soul is refreshed and made happy early in the morning. So, apprenticing yourself to God's own joy through his word, feeding on him, enjoying him in Christ, letting him satisfy your soul and warm your heart, not for sermon prep, but to feed your own soul, is the well from which we draw joy in pastoring for their joy. Second then, last point of application to end. Finally, now together as pastors. So the first one is early morning, by yourself, over the word, meditating. Second one, together as pastors. The brothers are gathered around the table. How often in our call to govern the church and lead the church through prayer and collective wisdom and decision-making for the church, do we find two or more options before us? There's some decisions we just roll through. Like, we all agree, we know what to do next, you know, things almost on autopilot. Other times, boom, we're at a fork in the road. We, maybe many of us or all of us are torn, or the opinions are on far different places, being two or three different options. And this is a good moment to check ourselves. It's often a good moment to pause for prayer. What is our framework as leaders for making these decisions? It can be very easy for a group to slip into a kind of group selfish mindset. What's easiest? What's most convenient for those who are sitting around the table? Without saying it or even thinking it explicitly, how might our preferences and our comforts shape this church? How might church life be more convenient for us? 
rather than asking which path, so far as we can tell, will be best for our people's true joy in Christ. And beware when you ask that question because it's often the path that is most costly to the pastors and elders that is the answer to that question. That's why the ministry is labor. That's why it's work. But this is the work that we're called to, brothers, as workers for their joy. If our team of pastors and elders trends toward the personal preferences and conveniences of the pastors and elders, then we are not loving our people well, not working with them for their joy, but we are using them for ours. And it's pretty cheap joy for us too. But when we are workers for their joy, knowing that Christ is most glorified in his church, when his church is most satisfied in him, then from joy, we gladly set aside our own convenience and comfort, personal preference, and together labor for the joy of our people in Jesus Christ. So Father in heaven, this is, in one sense, a heavy vision because we all know ourselves to be so often lacking in joy. And yet, Father, I pray that it would land, that it would be applied as a freeing vision, that you designed the ministry this way. You didn't design it for us to be miserable. You don't want us to groan. This is good news that you, with your omnipotent power and your word and your spirit and the conspiracy of your people, want to make pastors happy in the work, glad in the work for the good of the church. And so, Father, would you do that? Would you be pleased to do it in Minneapolis? Pleased to do it in Quebec, Montreal, for the glory of your son and the joy of your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.